I don't think I introduced myself, but I'm Jack. I'm the, North, I'm the lead pastor here. And so welcome to some of our visitors and, and folks that are new to our community. Look forward to getting to know you over time. Today we're starting a new sermon series called 23. It's kind of very U2-ish. Uh, and we're looking at Psalm 23. We're starting a new season in the church calendar today called Lent. It actually started on Wednesday, but this is the first Sunday of Lent. And just a real quick in case you're like, what's that? Many of us, and we're not Catholic, or what is that? Why are we doing this? Um, Lent comes from this old English word that means springtime. And so we celebrate it in the springtime. But actually, the Latin word that's connected to the word Lent, and I learned this with Alicia this week, is Lente. Lent, is that right? Which means slowly. So I think it's very interesting. It gives you the kind of two aspects of Lent. One, springtime, you think of... Um, all the plants that are right now kind of germinating, seeds are germinating, getting ready to break through the soil. And really, it's, it's a celebration um, in the Christian faith of, of God's hope, resurrection life. This is why we celebrate Easter at the end of Lent, breaking through really dark places. And so um, this is part of what we hope for through this season of Lent is that God would break through some of the darkness in our own lives and in our own world. And we just keep praying for that. And that's the hope of the resurrection. The other part is... This opportunity to really slow down. So Lent is, I mean, you can think of it, uh, life continues to just speed up through the year. We're all planning our summer vacations and tax season and all these things. Like we're just, the calendars feel so full as we, as we just kind of hurtle toward the end of the school year for parents. And this is an intentional time of the year for us just to uh, kind of apply the brakes a little bit and just slow down. So that's what our hope is for us as a church, is just to take some time throughout the season of Lent to contemplate what it, what it looks like to have God working in our lives, and He does work in very slow ways. Um, and so as a way of doing that, a lot of us, have, or some of us, I should say, have decided to, to take chocolate or Coca-Cola or whatever, and we, we, we skip that for Lent, and that's fine. That's totally fine. Fasting has been a historical thing during Lent. Um, I want to, there's a, a monastic community, I think it's the Benedictines, that actually do something a little different. And what they do is they read something or they take a discipline on during Lent. So a lot of Protestants like take time off of something and <laughs> you can argue whether that's helpful or not. I want to invite us, that's fine if you're doing it, but um, to take something on. And to that end, a couple of ways you could do this. Um, we did this spiritual disciplines series sometime back. And if you weren't here for that, um, and you missed it, you can go on our website. You can find all those sermons from all of our locations. There actually are some cards that, it's a rule of life card. It's kind of a large format deal with all those disciplines on it. And you could just pick one. You know, it could be fasting. Could fast once a week. You could, could be meditation. Could be uh, like more time with God and just carving out time in your week for God. And there's lots of those. Just pick one. The other thing I want to invite us to do is actually, we have a, we have a published author sitting, we have several, but we have a published author sitting here in our midst. Oh, yes. So one of our, my good friends, Sean, I know he's like totally embarrassed here, but go ahead and just raise your hand. Sean Petrie, really good friend of mine and, and a member of our community. And uh, he wrote a book recently called Am I Loved? And um, he started blogging about this during Lent as a way to engage not only the content of the book, um, but really engage the question, am I loved? And it's really exploring this question that we're all asking, though we don't know it, uh, we feel a lot of shame in our lives, a lot of us, a lot of doubts whether God even cares anymore. And so Sean's written this book out of his own story um, as a way to help us engage that question. 
And so what he's doing with his blog, it's amilove.org, is inviting you. There's little belief on ramps at the end of each chapter just to take this up during Lent, engage the content, but just go on that journey with the Lord throughout Lent. Just, and there's lots of Bible in here. There's lots, it's actually better than most of my, all my sermons, but it's pretty awesome. So to that end, what I, wanna, what I invited Sean um, today to um, bring some of his books. He's going to be out in our little foyer entryway as you leave. You could talk to him about it. Um, you could grab one. You got to pay for it. Um, but you could grab one. He could guide you to the blog, and you could kind of work your way through this during, during the season of Lent. This, we'll bring this up later in the year as well, but um, it's been really awesome. This is the special edition pirated copy, so do not take this. I'm going to leave it on my chair. It should be there when I leave today, okay? So having said all that, that's just to kind of start us out. Let me take a moment to pray, and we're going to start our new series in Psalm 23. Let's pray. God, thank you for this new season, which we get to kind of slow down and um, go deep into a very familiar piece of Scripture. Um, thanks how that's heading, leading us toward your resurrection and the celebration of that on Easter. So would you slow our hearts down even now, God, as we... As we come into your word. We come under your word. Um, we ask you, Lord of our lives, to um, reveal to our hearts what you have to speak to us today. Would you, uh, would you shape us to be a people of mission today as well, as we head out, people who are excited about sharing um, you with others. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so to start us today, uh, I want to show a little clip from one of my favorite movies, and you'll see how this kind of connects. It's called... Um, Waking Ned Divine. Has anybody seen Waking Ned Divine? Okay, there's a few. It's a, like a British movie, so I'm always worried. I love British movies. <clears throat> 1998, this movie started, or was filmed, or was out. And it's, I'll just, just set it up. It was set in this little tiny Irish village of Tullamore. And it, it ta- it's about this guy named Ned Divine. Well, actually, kind of. But this guy, Ned Divine, is playing the lottery, like everybody in this village, it seems. And he wins the Irish National Lottery, a seven million pound lottery. And he's like so overcome with shock in this moment that he dies of a massive heart attack in front of the TV while he's still holding his ticket and he has this smile glued to his face. And so he's found in his house, and he thinks it's kind of a morbid, it is kind of a morbid comedy, but he's found in his house by his two friends, Jackie O'Sullivan and Michael O'Shea, or no, Jackie O'Shea and Michael O'Sullivan, and in this elaborate attempt to fool this um, lottery inspector who's kind of been sent to the village to, to like... Um, uh, authenticate Ned's ticket, they, they, they want to claim the winnings of this thing for themselves and their whole village. So they, they, they swap identities with Ned. So they, this guy wouldn't know that Ned's died. So now Michael is Ned, and Ned is Michael, dead Ned. And then the plot goes so far, so deep, this clip I'm going to show you is actually at Ned's or Michael's funeral. So this is the eulogy. Uh, and Jackie, this is going to totally confuse you, but he's up there giving the eulogy for his friend Michael, who's actually Ned, so he's sitting in the front row. Are you completely, like, completely confused? Okay, good. Let's watch this clip. It's really, I, I love it. So I'm going to actually move here so I can see it. I, lo- I love that. What a wonderful thing it would be to sit at your own funeral, you know. Um, sit there in the front, hear what's said, maybe even say a few things yourself. I've often, since seeing that movie, thought about that idea. I love it. I've done actually a lot of funerals in the 10 years I've been pastoring because I worked at a church in Pennsylvania where the, the demographics were flipped from this. So I did far more 
funerals each year that I did weddings or dedications or baptisms. And so I learned a lot in those few years. And, and um, in those funerals, at least 90, I'd say at least 90% of those funerals, I, I usually will ask a family, like, what scripture do you want to have read? You know, what, what scriptures do you like me to read? And, and 90% of the time, they're gonna, they, they say the 23rd Psalm, almost always. And it never ceases to amaze me. There's so much that's said at a funeral, like other scriptures that we'll read. I'll choose all sorts of great passages about hope and faith and resurrection. I'll say some things myself. And yet we get to the, the 23rd Psalm and everybody in the room starts to cry. Everybody breaks down because of this image of the great shepherd. It just goes so deep into our lives, you know. The one who takes me to these calm places, restores my soul, my aching heart, provides all these great beautiful images um, touches a deep nerve. It awakes this deep yearning. I mean, isn't that funny, right? Think about it. If our experience of sheep and shepherds um, is just so remote from the world of Psalm 23, how many of you, I mean, how many of you ever actually met a shepherd? Oh, there's a couple. Good. Some of us have never met shepherds. We've really not spent much time with sheep. And yet, you know, we have a world of concrete, strip malls, cars, cubicles, and yet we resonate with this psalm. Isn't that interesting? And my guess is that it's like this tuning fork for our souls. Like, you know, something in our, our hearts hums deeply when we hear it, and it's longing to awaken and sort of sing, right? And so what is that thing? Like, what is it about the 23rd Psalm that resonates so deeply with us? What a wonderful thing it would be to sit at your own funeral, Right? And to hear what it's said, to perhaps listen to that psalm being read and learn and hear your heart hum and sing and resonate and respond. And what a tragic thing we don't get to do that. Like, what a tragic thing. And until it's too late. The words that are spoken at a funeral are spoken too late for the person who's dead. Well, friends, in the coming weeks we get to do that. That's what I'm, I'm really excited about this. That we get to kind of sit in, some of you are in the front row. And we get to sit in the front row like Michael Sullivan and listen to what's being said. We get to allow God through this psalm, to speak to our hearts and invite us, maybe for the first time, maybe you've never really spent time in this psalm, um, to, to sing it over you, to speak it over you. So, so that, and here's where we're going to go. We're going to, like I said, Lent is about kind of slowing down. We're taking down, we're taking this, the 23rd psalm over the next, whatever, five weeks of Lent, and kind of verse by verse, actually today we're on verse 1a, the Lord is my shepherd, that's it. And we're going to go slowly. We're going to allow it to unfold. We're going to, in an effort just to know God, to know God's love for us. That's what Christianity is really all about, if you don't know that today. It's not about singing and mission and all that stuff's good. But really, the essence of Christianity is is personal knowing. That's what it is, personal relationship. Everything else is a consequence or comes second. Everything flows out of that. It's all good, but personally knowing God is number one. And God is taking us through this psalm into that kind of knowledge of himself. And we get to know God's voice and his love for us by slowing down in it and just allowing this shepherd of the psalm to speak over us. He longs to know us. Okay. And so what, what I want to invite us to do, uh, we're going to read the psalm together. Okay. And then I'm going to teach just from this first phrase. And the first phrase really literally is four words in English. It's two words in Hebrew. It's Lord and Shepherd. So our outline really is just to look at how David sees himself. He's the, well, I'm not going to tell you, but Lord and Shepherd, okay? How David sees himself and then how he sees God, okay? So let's, 
Take a moment. We're going to read this psalm together. And there's, we're going to do this as a response. So I'm going to read the first little paragraph, then you'll read the second. And we'll, we'll kind of do this each week, okay? And the, I think the goal over, one of the goals I have for us over this season of Lent is that you would make this your own. You know, you've maybe memorized this and you know this by heart. So I want this to kind of break through that memory into your, like, every day today. So we'll just continue to meditate on this, this psalm together, okay? So let me start us out. And this will be really, why don't you stand for a moment? And they just make this your own, okay? Uh, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Amen. I'm going to have a seat. So we're going to look at these two aspects of this first phrase, the Lord is my shepherd, um, how David sees himself, how David sees God. So let's start with how David sees himself. And he's really, just to tell you at the front end, he's God's sheep. So God is a shepherd to David. And if you follow that metaphor forward, what is David? A sheep. <laughs> now, when we, we hear that image or see the image of a sheep, our, like our imagination immediately, I'm sure you immediately went into like soft focus, right? Like green hills, pastures, beautiful waters, fluffy, downy, little whams, you know? And I'll just say right now, nothing could be further from the truth, in the, at least in this psalm. One of my favorite authors um, of all time is the Northwest author, David James Duncan. He wrote a book called The River Y. He's written this book called The Brothers K. He also has a book of short stories called River Teeth. And I read this years ago. One of my favorite short stories in it is called Her Idiots. And uh, it's about this woman who, I don't know how, gets into shepherding. I'm going to read you the first page of it. It's, it's just a really beautiful description of what I think David is seeing. So a Hallmark card miss hung in the air on the early spring day. She came to caretake the farm. After stowing her gear, rush, running over the chore list and waving nervously, she's like at an Airbnb or something, nervously grinning owners back to the city, she let the forced smile fall from her face, slumped in the rocker at the window and watched her Hallmark card sheep in the distance, gray cloud puffs grazing the green, transforming rough pasture to lawn. They were her first flock, or heard of any kind, her introduction to shepherdhood, venerable vocation of nomads and psalmists. Naturally, she was curious, so leaving the cabin, she strolled toward them, seeking, as with any new acquaintance, their eyes. As she expected to see, and she expected to see stupidity, she had been warned. She expected lovable ignorance, perennial victimhood, and vacuous yet genuine innocence, worth the costs of feed and endless vigilance. But as she strode in past the mist, squatted beside an ancient yew, and met for the first time that direct, all uncomprehending gaze, she was astounded. Nothing had prepared her for such an unspeakable non-intelligence. <laughs> the eyes were hideous, two piss-colored ice cubes. Sorry for the graphic image there. They understood nothing, never had nor would. Their seeing was not perception, it was radar, a cold, bloodless means of determining locations of meaningless objects. 
The eyes didn't disappoint her. They, they appalled her. She rose to escape them and had gone just a little distance when for no reason the entire flock startled and bolted, bolted away. Dried balls of dung clattered on their hide legs as they, on their tails as they ran. And she laughed at the sound. And that was the first day. And at first it seemed funny. <laughs> uh, and in case you just think this is like a piece of fictional flourish, I read this once. John Stott, he was a well-known British pastor. He's passed away now. He told this story of this cottage because put anything in England or Ireland or Wales and it's, it's actually true. So he, he tells us this, t- this cottage he had in, in Wales in Pembrokeshire. And one of his neighbors was a shepherd, a sheep herder. And so one day he came up to Stott and he said, hey, sheep are not all that clean, cuddly. You're, he's a pastor. They're not all the clean, cuddly creatures you, you see from the distance. On the contrary, they're dirty, subject to nasty pests. They need to be regularly dipped in strong chemicals to rid them of lice, ticks, and worms. They have no natural means, uh, means of defense, nor discernment about what to eat. A sheep will eat poisonous plants if somebody's not there to prevent it from. They're likely God's, this is the, the shepherd, likely God's most unintelligent and obstinate creature. And then Stott went away in his little commentary, and he said, uh, I went away from that encounter stunned. Like, I, I hesitate to describe the people of God as dirty, literally lousy, and stupid, but that's the force of the image. Sorry to say this, friends. And I know it sounds wonderful to say the Lord is my shepherd, you know? But I have this feeling that the reason many of us, we do cry and we, the, when we come to the funeral and there's something resonating within us, but the reason that many of us do it is out of sentimentality, right? We grew up in the church and we're not really letting the truth of it hit us. It's nostalgic. It reminds us of these happier days sitting in a pew somewhere with our parents. And the point is we're not facing the fact of this image. Um, and so what does it mean to say that the Lord is my shepherd? It, first, it means that the Lord is everything to me. Literally, a shepherd is someone who lives with, in this ancient Near Eastern context, lives with the sheep day and night, never goes home. Not the kind of shepherd David's talking about, at least. Uh, they sleep with the sheep. They do everything for the sheep. The shepherd is the sheep's protector, provider, physician, leader, guide, owner, everything, everything. Sheep are utterly incapable, which means if you carry the thinking forward, here's the second thing, sheep are nothing. <laughs> like nothing emotionally, nothing physically, nothing biologically. They are incapable of almost everything except breathing. And so as Jesus once said in the, one of the Gospels, Gospel of John, in this place, right after he reveals himself as the good shepherd, John 10, Remember what he says in John 15? Without me, you can do nothing. <laughs> I'm the good shepherd, you're a sheep. Without me, you're incapable. You're, you're a sheep. The Lord is my shepherd is this declaration and this honest confession, really, of our own nothingness. Um, vulnerability, weakness, insufficiency, incapability, all those things. And those are just not popular concepts in our society, right? Like, er, those are not virtues that we aspire to. <laughs> You know, everything in our hearts militating against that. We, we like the sound of it, but we hate the truth of it. You know, we, we like confidence, self-sufficiency, financial security, autonomy. And yet the truth of the gospel is this. This is what Psalm 23 is declaring to us. We're sheep. <laughs> and we're incapable. We are insecure. We're, we're full of fear. We're just like these sheep that ran away at the sound of her. We have no idea what's up, what's down. I mean, I kind of wish David just chose a different animal. Any animal would have done better. Any wild animal, I don't care. Now, what's more, <clears throat> David isn't seeing himself as just one of many sheep. Um, he's not just part of the dumb flock, okay? Look at this. The Lord is my shepherd. This is really important. 
So if you look at other places in the Old Testament about this imagery of sheep and shepherds, what you're going to find is almost uniformly, if not, I'd say all, all the time, the, those images are always collective. So here's an example, Psalm 78, Psalm 78, 52. God brought his people out like a flock and led them through the wilderness of their wandering like sheep through the desert. So the metaphor there is collective, and you read through many examples of this in the Old Testament. And it was natural for pastoral communities like the Israelites to think of God as their shepherd. They're wandering in the desert, they're helpless, they're lost. God, be our shepherd. And yet here David audaciously declares God as his shepherd. It's unmistakably personal. All throughout the psalm, the the pronouns don't switch. My shepherd, my help, my protector, my comforter. David doesn't even mention the other sheep of the flock. Um, They're nowhere to be seen. Is he he so clouded by his own pride that he can't see them? Or is there something else going on? And I think there's something else going on. See, if David could have time-traveled about 400 years, he would have heard Jesus tell a story, the one I, I just referred to. Uh, well, actually, no, different story. <laughs> Jesus is always telling sheep stories. And it's, it's really the, the why behind David's my, okay? And it's in Luke chapter 15. Don't feel like you need to turn there. But Jesus tells uh, a series of connected parables. The, the parable of the lost, the woman who's lost the coin. You know these. The parable of the man who's lost his son. And then the, the parable of, of the shepherd who's lost his sheep. Here's the story. The shepherd has 100 sheep. Somehow one wanders out wanders away. And the twist in the story is this. This particular shepherd, in his or her desire to care for and recover that one sheep, leaves the 99. In the wilderness, by the way, to recover the one. He leaves the 99 vulnerable to attack. They're stupid. (laughs) They could wander off to recover the one lost stupid sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. Do you you see this, what David is saying? David doesn't mention, acknowledge, even see the other sheep of the flock. Why? He's not in the flock. He's not in the flock. Put differently, inside the parable, David's the one. David's the one lost. He's not one of the 99. And this is so significant. If you know David's story, if you know his life, you'll know it's a life of turmoil. You'll know it's a life of confusion and lostness. Um, Moral, ethical, broken relationships, failure as a, a husband, failure as a leader, By the end of his life, he's surrounded by enemies. He's being hunted down by his son Absalom and the mad king Saul. He's not popular. He's not loved. He's not successful. He's a singular lost sheep. That's all he is. Eugene Peterson has a great little uh, spiritual biography of David called Leap Over a Wall. And he says this in the introduction. The David story presents us not with a polished ideal, which we've made it and which we're to aspire, but with a rough-edged actuality. David is a rough-edged actuality, which is just the point. In this unambiguous mixture of good, bad, joy, despair, obedience, disobedience, success, failure, belovedness and brokenness is David, that's us. That's all of us. That's the point of the David story. It's David's lostness that gives us the important clue into understanding ourselves. He is so lost. The Lord is my shepherd. I am a lost sheep. I'm nothing more. I mean, have you ever really reflected on what, it, what the Bible is telling you when it says, The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is your shepherd. Um, You are a singular lost sheep wandering in the wilderness alone. I mean, have you ever received that as your reality or is it just something that you remember from your childhood and said in a Sunday school? I can vividly remember the day I internalized that message. 
You know, I was in my own lostness. I recognized my own lostness. It was 1993, sophomore year of my, uh, in college. Right around this time of year, midwinter kind of break, I was back at UPS in Tacoma where I went to college. I was supposed to be in Hawaii with my swim team, but I was academically ineligible. I was failing two different classes. By the way, I had gotten a 4.0 in high school. I was failing swimming or classes so I couldn't swim. My bank account literally was empty. I was overdrawn, that overdraft. This is before overdraft protection. So I'm literally living off top ramen and gummy bears, literally. I mean, that's all I could afford. Uh, my top drawer on my dresser, just to be very vulnerable, was filled with this different drug paraphernalia. I'd really kind of gone off the deep end in partying. My two best friends, one of whom is part of our church now, one was expelled uh, because of an academic violation that uh, related to our drug use. He was out of school back in Yakima. The other had admitted himself to a mental hospital in New Orleans. I'm not making this up. Because of the pressure of college and the reckless life that we were living. It was too much for him. I'm alone. I just remember sitting in the basement there. It was dingy, dark, I mean, dank, like, you know, Tacoma. You can imagine this old craftsman-style house, mold everywhere. And I'm there on my futon, and I just felt this overwhelming sense of loneliness, lostness, complete darkness. And it was in that moment, I had started to learn the story of Jesus. And, I, and I'm not kidding, in that moment where I first, you know, I remember hearing this psalm as a child, going to Catholic school, Catholic, Saturday night Catholic mass, and I cried out, God, be my shepherd. I'm so alone. And though my story, I mean, for a lot of you, that's sensational. You grew up in the church. Like, I've never had that experience. I want to just challenge you. That, that palpable sense of lostness that I still feel at moments in my life is true for every one of you. Every one of you. It doesn't matter who you are, how good you've lived, where you've been. All of us have a level of insecurity and lack, a place of lack in our lives, an area where we're not complete yet, um, or we're not fully formed, or we haven't yet arrived. You know, we have a profound sense of being unfinished. We're insecure. We have a sense of being lost. We're lost in our marriages, lost as we slave away at doing a job we don't really love, lost in an addiction. I mean, I've been there. Are you there? It doesn't matter what it is. Lost because of the turmoil in our world, the school shootings that happened this week, bombs, racism, political dysfunction that affect vulnerable communities. Lost, lost, lost. We are so lost, which makes us feel very lonely as well as drives us to despair. We despair in our lostness. And sometimes that leads us to not only self-shepherd, <laughs> like we try and figure it out ourselves, you know, just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, be a strong man, strong woman, but self-destruct like I was, like numb the lostness away through distraction and substance and more work, more vacations, avoidance, whatever have you, what have you, right? And why do you think the gospel's calling you a sheep? Not because it's a beautiful little downy image for you. Not because they have a warm coat to keep them, you know, dry and warm in the winter. No, God is always calling people his sheep and calling shepherds from among his people to shepherd the sheep. Moses was a shepherd. Abraham was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. Because beneath it all, all of it, all the trappings of church, all the trappings of our religious lives, we are biological, spiritual, and emotional incompletenesses. We're inadequate to save ourselves. Every one of us is. We're vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. We're weak. We're just filled with shame. That's who we are. Okay? Yet, here's the beauty. That's how David sees himself. And <laughs> he's not just lost. We're all lost. So there's the good news for the morning. <laughs> and yet, 
profoundly loved. And here's, here's the better news. This is how David sees God. So he sees himself as a lost sheep. Lost. Not the 99, the one. But think, who's, David, who's God to David? Think of this. I've already said that God is David's shepherd, or he's David's shepherd. But listen, in the Hebrew of that, this first phrase, that's actually a verb. So shepherding is what God does. It's not who he is. God does shepherding. <laughs> okay, you might do shepherding too. That's not who you are. So who's God? Well, David calls him the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. And we see this word in capitals, you know, all over the Bible. And you kind of wonder, why did they capitalize that one, right? And that's actually code <laughs> for, um, it's an indicator that they're using a special Hebrew word there. And you've probably heard this before, Yahweh. Um, and that's the word David chooses for Lord in Hebrew. So Yahweh is my shepherd. Now, why does it matter that you know the Hebrew of the Lord? Like, who cares? Especially in your own lostness. Like, I don't, it doesn't really move the needle for me. Um, I've been known by a few different names in my own life. I'm sure you have. Um, some have been appropriate, others not. Some colorful. I was teased a lot as a kid. Jack Be Nimble, Jack Be Quick, J- Jack and Jill. I mean, you can imagine. That's my given name. It's not a nickname. So I, I've been dealing with that. Go to therapy all the time. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, Sometimes it's affectionate, you know, sweetheart, dad, son, little brother. Other times less. When I was in high school, my nickname was Goofy. And I, I had this uncontrollable, you, you'll probably not believe this, but this silly personality that was kind of borderline weird. And I, I just desperately wanted people to like me, so I kind of chose Goofy for some reason. And it was really incredibly hard to outgrow, really hard to outgrow. And elements of that persist today. And later I went to seminary, I got my MDiv, now I'm a pastor, you want to get under my skin, call me Reverend Brace. Like I was in Pennsylvania, they gave me a box of business cards that said Reverend Jack Brace, and I literally took them back to the office and said, can you reprint those just to say Jack Brace? And like, nobody's ever done that. I'm like, yeah, that's just not working. I'm not Reverend Brace. So you can do that, but you might not be my friend anymore. So, and these are all proper descriptions of me, but none of them are me. They're not my name. They're not my identity, Okay. I might call you a doctor or an engineer. I might call you a teacher or a therapist or a parent, but none of those are you. They don't accurately describe you. If you really want to know, you really want to call me by my name, just call me Jack. I invite you all, Jack, just Jack. That's all you have to call me. So in the same way David sits down to pen the words of Psalm 23, he has this arsenal of names to describe God. He has Elohim, which is the Hebrew word for creator and sustainer and judge. El Shaddai, you know that song by whatever her name is? El Shaddai, whatever. God Almighty. El Roy, which by the way, it means the God who sees, is the name that Hagar, who's the slave of uh, Abraham, or Abram and Sarah, um, she's the first person to name God in the Bible. Isn't that amazing? A Hebrew slave woman. That's amazing. Uh, the God who sees. That's, I love that. And all these would have been appropriate. If David picked any of those or more, but he sits down, he writes down, Yahweh is my shepherd. So why does he do that? Well, Yahweh, as you look at scholarship on this, is the personal name of God. It's, the, it's God's actual name. It's not what God does, it's who God is. So in Exodus chapter 3, it's how God introduces himself to Moses, how God introduces himself for the first time in the Bible. Remember the burning bush story in Exodus 3? I mean... Moses asked God the question, who are you? That's what we'd all ask a burning bush if we saw a burning bush and was talking like, who are you? And God says, I am who I am. And that I am is translated in the Hebrew word Yahweh. 
Yahweh's God's name. It's roughly analogous to you going up to someone and saying, hello, professor. You know, hello, doctor. Hello, your honor. Like, we do that, right? And this person saying to you, no, just call me John. Can you imagine a judge doing that? Just call me Sue. It's cool. And when you say, call me by my first name, what you're doing is this. I want a relationship with you. I want to, um, I don't just want you to recognize I'm a great professor, inspiring leader, or powerful authority. I want to be your friend. Call me by my name. Yahweh is David's shepherd. God is his friend. This is important. So you can get into all kinds of debates about the deeper meaning of Yahweh. Moses never cared to ask God. He just took it at face value. Some say it's a combination of I am and I cause. So God, though God creates, he's not created. He causes, he's never caused. There's an inherent power to Yahweh. But there's more to it than that. God is also comforting us with this word. It's personal, it's intimate. In, in fact, some scholars say that the God, it, it's like the, saying, God, if you say Yahweh, it's like the God who's closer to you than your own breath. It kind of comes out intimately. You're aware of this thing. In Exodus 3 again, um, the reason I think God says this to Moses, he says, hey, I'm, I'm going to send you back to the people of Israel. You're going to tell them my name, Yahweh, and you're going to tell them, you're going to lead them in my name. And Moses is like, why? Like, why me? Why you? And here's what Moses, or God says to Moses in Exodus 3, 7, and this is the message. You're going back, I'm Yahweh, because I've taken a good long look at the affliction of my people. I've seen all their cries of deliverance from their slave masters. I know their pain. And I, I've, I want to come down. I've come down to help them, to pry them loose from that grip of slavery, to get them out of that place and bring them to a good land with wide open space. I mean, do you see it? God tells Moses that he's seen, heard, felt their sufferings, that those things have gotten God's attention and moved his heart to act. That's what Yahweh means. See, God's not just this all-powerful, uncreated creator. <laughs> he's also the God who's close enough to hear, see, care, and then do something about everything happening in your life, whatever that is. Yahweh. That's how God introduces himself. That's God's name. That's God's character. This is who David calls to as his shepherd, the shepherd God. Um, now think of it. God's call on David's life is to rescue him from his own lostness. How can you rescue someone when you're standing far off at a distance? You know, you're aloof, you're God in the sky, you're God of history and tradition and Psalm 23 written in the, written in the clouds, you know. That's not, that's all good, but that's not God. God's with us. He's ever-present. And, and, and like I said, sheep and shepherds are somehow hard for us to identify with, except for the three or four that have met a shepherd. Uh, most of us have never been near sheep, let alone shepherds. So I was thinking of this earlier in the week. What could be a better frame to understand this idea of God present in our help and our trouble? Personally present. And guess what I thought of? You're not going to guess. A lifeguard. <laughs> Here's why. I lifeguarded this might seem eh, kind of crafty, but I lifeguarded a lot when I was a kid growing up as a swimmer. I lifeguarded at pools in Spokane. It was my, high, uh, my summer job. And then it turned to my work-study job in college. And this one summer, I was lifeguarding at this pool in Spokane, and this kid, it was very, like, sandlotish moment here. This kid, I knew this kid. He was at the pool every day, always trouble. I was always kicking him out. Got up on the diving board, high dive, walked into the high dive, and waved, and just best pencil dive he could, 
into the deep end. And by the way, this kid was not a swimmer. And so, and he was no fat on his body, just a little tiny kid. And he sunk like a rock, didn't flail as I expected him to, nothing, just right to the bottom of the 12 foot deep end. And I had three choices in that moment. Uh, Throw him my little preserver thing, you know, the red preserver, throw it. Get my my, uh, crook. It's interesting that shepherds and lifeguards have both have crooks, you know, get the thing. Or jump in and dive to the bottom and get him. Now, the crook wasn't going to do the job. wasn't long enough. The little floaty thing wasn't going to do the job. He was at the bottom of 12 feet of water, and so I, you can guess what I did. I dove, fully just dove. And I remembered from my lifeguard training in the moments between diving and reaching the bottom of the pool to get him. Once you have a drowning swimmer, I'd never had a drowning swimmer in my arms. I had done it in um, training. Once you have a drowning swimmer in your arms, you have to get your arm around their, I wish I could pull somebody up here, but you get your arm around their chest, under their armpit, and you got to kind of hold, hold them tight right? Hold them tight because they're going to fight you for their life. They think you're going to, they think if they're conscious that you're trying to hurt them. And then you need to talk to them. Talk to them. If you know their name, say their name. Get personal. They're flailing. They're scared. They're desperate. They've taken in water. You're grabbing them. You're holding them. They think you're going to hurt them. So you have to be kind of rough. You have to always be stronger, a stronger swimmer than a drowning swimmer. But that's never going to get the job done alone. You have to also be personal. Say their name. It's going to be okay. I've got you. You're okay. And that's what I did with this, this little boy. The Lord is my shepherd. It's the language of intimacy as well as power. Do you hear this? God is there to save David, but also be in David's life. So what are the implications of this for our life? Let me just conclude this way. Just a real practical implication to draw out. Some of you just need to relax. I mean, I'm seeing a lot of people in my life, in our church, they're just tense with fear, with anxiety, with work. And you, me, we need to rest. We need to relax into our shepherd's care. This image of the lifeguard. You might be drowning and you need to just relax. He's a good shepherd. You know, I shared that story from Luke 15 about the, the shepherd who goes and recovers his lost sheep, the one um, from this far off open country. What I didn't share is the shepherd's response once he found the sheep. Listen to this. Here's how Jesus puts it. When the shepherd found his lost sheep, guess what he did? He joyfully put the sheep on his shoulders. He held it like I held that swimmer. And then he called his friends and neighbors. And he says, rejoice. I found my lost sheep. This one, this stupid little sheep. (laughs) I found it. Let's have a party. Let's have a birthday party, whatever. Like when are you going to see my friends, if you're, if you're just filled with stress and fear and all these things, that we have a shepherd God who is coming after you, who loves you that much. He's throwing, he wants to throw a party for you. It doesn't matter how entangled you are in whatever sin it is. It doesn't matter what you've done. No one can snatch you out of his hand. He's a good shepherd. There's nothing you've done that can change his love for you. There's nothing you can do that can change his love for you. Nothing. So when are you going to relax? That's my question for you today. This Lent. When are you going to start resting in him and realizing that's the kind of God we have? A shepherd God. Our task, the takeaway this coming week, is this invitation, I think, to rest into our shepherd's care. Um, 
And so how we might look, do that, here's, here's, the, here's what I want to do. Have you ever read, we just read Psalm 23 together collectively. Have you ever really read it as your own prayer? Like open to that page in the Bible and let yourself be the sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He guides me. I don't even know all the words. I need, we're going to read it together. That's my invitation to you guys. To internalize this that as sort of part of our Lenten practice, to see ourselves as more lost than we ever imagined and yet more loved than we ever hoped. Like, just do that. Make this your prayer. God, be my shepherd. Lean into your lostness. Go deep into it. God, I am so lost right now, but I know you're the good shepherd. You'll find me and you love me. Lean into your belovedness. That's who God is. And do this. And you know what you're going to find? In the psalm, we're going to talk about this later in Lent. Rest for your souls. I promise that because God says he will. The loving embrace of our shepherd, the one who rejoices in seeking and finding you. So here's what we're going to do. Don, if you want to go back to the psalm, uh, and I'll invite our worship team forward. We're going to read this together. You can stay seated while we do this. Um, and I want, I want this to be our prayer together. Um, and this is how we'll this close this. This will be our prayer. <laughs> and then we'll respond by singing um, the next song. Uh, when we get to the mys, just really, just again, allow yourself to be in this psalm as the, the lost sheep, but that's loved by God. Let's read this together. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me.